Industry consolidation and M&A is one of the topics we have heard uh, several times during these uh, two days uh, of our forum. And uh, we are now having a panel with top industry experts who are going to delve exactly into this very significant topic. I would like to thank um, Greg Chase from Rick Smith for moderating it. And I would like to welcome and thank uh, Krista, Hamish, Roberto, Andreas, and uh, Andy for uh, being with us. And again, special thanks to Krista for being a partner of this event and for doing multiple duties for being on a, on a number of key panels and sharing her insights. So thank you and Greg, the floor is yours. Great, thank, thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, again, my name is Greg Chase. I'm a partner at the law firm Reed Smith uh, based in New York City. Uh, I lead Reed Smith's transactional uh, shipping team in, in New York and, and, and in the US. Uh, we work on a wide range of transactions, uh, both finance and corporate and, and orientation. Uh, both for banks and owners and, and investors. Uh, in recent months, we've acted in a lot of transactions, which I would qualify as, as consolidation transactions, uh, from the purchase of fleets on Norwegian sale form terms to ship for shares deals, uh, where public company shares are used as currency to acquire vessels. And we've also been involved in more traditional stock for stock deals. Uh, we have a great panel this afternoon. There's a lot of discussion in the market about consolidation and some of the factors that may be contributing to the environment and whether this is in fact a good environment for, for, for consolidation. Uh, before we get into the substance of the panel, let's just quickly go through. I'll let each panelist introduce themselves and then we'll, we'll have a discussion. Uh, maybe we'll go through the, in, in the order that I see on the screen. Uh, Hamish, maybe we should start with you. Uh, sure, thanks. I'm Hamish Norton. I'm president of Starbolt Carriers Corp, which is a large dry bulk uh, shipping company that's listed on NASDAQ. Thank you. And Andreas? Andreas Peruchos, based in New York and in New York currently. I am the senior investment executive of BW Group. Um, the last 15 years I've been a private equity investor and I've been affiliated with uh, BW Group as a board member for the past uh, dozen years. Thank you. Uh, Roberto? Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, I'm Roberto Rondelli, partner at Pillarstone. Pillarstone is a private equity fund uh, that has the, that focus on uh, on distress investments and uh, has been set up in partnership with uh, with KKR. Uh, we are investing mainly in Italy and we manage three billion of uh, asset under management, of which one point three billion is, is shipping. This is the reason why I'm here. Thank you. Great, and Kristen. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Krista Volpicelli. I work with Citigroup based in New York. I'm a managing director and head up our maritime investment banking team. Uh, my responsibilities as part of that cover mergers and acquisition advisory as well as capital markets. Thank you very much. And Andy, how about you? Yeah, hi, everybody. Andy Dacey. I work with JP Morgan. Asset management. I run a team at JP Morgan that invests in transportation assets. We have a pretty big shipping fleet. Uh, we're also in the aviation space and other base forms of land-based transportation. Uh, I've been in the business for the last 30 years on the shipping side. Happy to be here. Thanks, Greg. Great. Well, um, you know, this is certainly an interesting time. We're getting towards the end of the first quarter in 2021. Uh, we're, we're starting to see some enthusiasm, at least among my contacts about a post-pandemic world. Maybe that's a little optimistic, but, but, but fingers crossed. Certainly the stock market is, is very buoyant. Uh, and I think M&A activity is strong in a number of sectors. Uh, people I talk to in the shipping world 
to tell me they think this is an environment where there's a lot of enthusiasm for potential consolidation. Um, I, I guess we should start there. Let's, let's set the stage. Uh, is, is this an environment where consolidation and shipping is uh, probably uh, you know, soon to be seen? Uh, is, it, is it a good environment? Is it different than in the past? Uh, and, and maybe Krista, maybe I, I know you get asked to set the market stage quite often, in, uh, but yeah, I think you have pretty good perspective. But what would you say to that? Are we in a new moment for consolidation in, in shipping? Sure, absolutely. Happy to comment there. Um, are we in a new moment? I think that what we are seeing is a acceleration of trends in consolidation within shipping. Um, I don't think it's a brand new moment. I think it's an evolution that has been happening over the years. Um, you know, we have we have seen how consolidation can be extremely helpful in, in certain segments. One of the reasons why the container liner sector has performed so well in the face of the pandemic has been because of the consolidation that occurred um, in the last five or six years. Uh, and you have companies that can behave more rationally, have better balance sheets. Now, there were some real synergies to those combinations. And when you start to talk about other sectors of shipping, um, you know, those synergies may be different. But I think, you know, we, we are certainly seeing an acceleration. I think the trends in the capital markets point towards investors wanting to back companies who have larger platforms, the ability to grow. And as we think about some of the themes that have been discussed in this conference of things like energy transition and how do companies transform themselves in, in that journey, uh, I think consolidation is, is a part of that. Andy, maybe I could ask you your, your point of view. Uh, do, do you see it the same way? I mean, I, I think that scale will be important going forward. I'd almost use the word aggregation as opposed to consolidation. I, I, I look around, at least in the public company market sector, in shipping, and I, I ask myself the question, are these are there natural combinations out there of companies? Maybe there's some big companies that can absorb the fleets of other companies, but unlike in other industries where you get synergies by combining land-based activities, I, I think that's less the case in the shipping industry. I think it's more about having the capital wherewithal to invest in some of the things Krista mentioned in terms of energy transition uh, and, and having the type of profile that's gonna attract what I would argue is the, the longer term business that you're gonna to need to invest. Sorry about my dogs. <laughs> you're gonna to need to invest in the, the types of transitional technology that is gonna cost more than the traditional legacy vessels that are out there. So I, I think capital and assets will circulate and aggregate around um, those companies that have the bigger platforms. Uh, maybe there'll be some consolidation, but most of it I think will be just capital driving investment in new technology in my opinion. But, but is there something particular about this moment in the, the first quarter of 2021 as we hopefully get to the back end of this COVID crisis that makes this, this environment different than what we had, say, pre-COVID crisis? What, what are some of the factors that are, you know, obviously people are talking about ESG and the energy transition, for sure. It seems reasonable to me that coming out of this crisis, people are focused on, on these kinds of, uh, of topics as we think about progress in, in the world. But is there something in the, in the market environment that is galvanizing galvanizes the discussion in this area? And is it, is, is it, is it attributable as something new? Well, um, you know, what's new in the dry bulk 
business is that there's optimism. Uh, there are strong rates, people who, you know, a few months ago would, would you know, not touch dry bulk with a 10 foot pole are now interested in dry bulk. And, um, you know, th th that has fueled speculation that maybe it's a good environment for, for aggregation, as Andy says, or consolidation, however you want to think about it. And maybe it is, uh, but I mean, it cuts both ways because um, it, it, before when you know, nobody was interested in dry bulk and people were not optimistic, you know, it was, it was maybe easier for somebody to say, you know, I'm giving up and I'll take shares in Star Bulk or whichever other large company and, um, you know, I'll have the liquidity. But now everybody's optimistic and they pretty much are, want to and maybe are able to stay with what they've got. So, you know, I think it, it could go either way, frankly. Um, I, I do think, though, that there's a big advantage to getting bigger in the public markets, which is that, you know, investors want bigger companies. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, an important factor. So, so we have, obviously, strong freight rates. Uh, people talk a lot about supply. I guess the, the order book is, is very much under control. Uh, is that something that, that has evolved to a point where you know, the, the combination of those two factors make uh, M&A and shipping more, more attractive and viable than it was even a few months ago? Well, again, I, I'm not sure whether it's more attractive or less attractive to the, the let's say, the party being bought. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes it more attractive for you know, the, the, whomever is buying the asset because the asset looks like it's going to produce more income, but the seller maybe sees the asset producing more income too. So, you know, I, I'm not sure it's easier. I, I hope it will become easier um, because I do think that it's good to grow for us. Um, <laughs> Yeah. If I can add on, on this, I see it from a private uh, uh, company perspective, but uh, for us, <clears throat> the consolidation and the growth has, has been, uh, you know, our play because we look uh, at this stress situation and obviously uh, in that moment, we like to aggregate. Uh, we have done uh, a lot of uh, situation in Italy and try to aggregate the markets in 2000, since 2017. But... Uh, I, I agree with your point. I think it's easier probably when things are not going well. Uh, and the second point important for us as investors is that growing in size, especially in this time when there is so much change with ESG, eco-transition uh, is very key because we believe that building up uh, a strong balance sheet, uh, clean uh, with you know, uh, no, no debt like we, we have at the moment, give us uh, the opportunity you know, to take uh, maybe a first step uh, towards uh, this, uh, this transition. So there are some elements that uh, push us uh, as investors to look at opportunities to aggregate. And for example, the wet size is very interesting for us at the moment. Andreas, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on, on these topics? So um, 
as, as Hamish actually said, I'll use the line, it's just, it's not easy. Uh, it's certainly the case that there is a lot more activity. I think uh, if you take the analogy of real estate or any other hard asset market uh, for until the last few months, uh, there wasn't much hope, if you want, not many green shoots and uh, people were simply not even willing to transact. Right now there are green shoots. Um, those can be either a hope of a better economic recovery, a hope of a particular segment recovery. So at this point, uh, people with not very strong balance sheets, at least are thinking they may be back or close to the money. So they're willing to at least put themselves in the market and sell. Others who may have had a little bit of money but weren't sure if they were buying a complete lemon or not, and they did not want to be caught with their pants down before. Now they're basically saying, okay, I'll, I'll actually engage really earnestly in conversation. So um, certainly there is consolidation need. Uh, we have a number of companies that are sub-billion market cap. I, I can tell you all of our CEOs are telling us that, um, again, having a dozen public companies, each of which is between 500 and a billion is not ideal. Some of obviously a number of them are obviously above a billion. Those trade a lot better, uh, surely because of size. And so I agree with uh, people who actually said that. Um, I also think, you know, the outcome of all this is that we actually are seeing the last six months, uh, the most frenetic activity we've seen in a lot of years. Uh, not every deal closes, but there is frenetic activity and not all of it. In fact, most of it is not process oriented. It's one-on-one, -on -one, two-on-one uh, kind of processes. Um, our biggest competitors today are the public markets uh, because whether it's ESG driven or something else, uh, people can raise money reasonably easily, be this as a SPAC or be this in Euronext growth or whatever that may be. Uh, and so um, public markets seem to be willing to fund very easily um, um, and they take the place of cash. That usually doesn't turn out well, usually. Um, and uh, so we'll see where it goes. But, but so far, uh, so far, um, and, you know, again, I think there is a lot of activity. We actually have acted that way ourselves. In the past 12 months, we bought six companies. Um, the biggest amount of equity we committed was uh, 200 million for Navigator. Uh, where we acquired a 39% stake. We invested 60 some million uh, in Cadillac, we invested uh, 70 million in acquiring a controlling stake in Ideal. So uh, those are three that were actually publicly disclosed. Uh, there is others that you know we didn't disclose amounts. So we do think times are very interesting to acquire, very interesting, but you have to be very careful. And again, I would say uh, I would not put all of my money in this vintage year. Um, we're still in transition, who knows what will happen and certainly markets are very frothy. So anyway, that was maybe too comprehensive, Greg. I hope not too long, but that was kind of our holistic view on the market at that level, if you want. No, that, that was great. You touched on a number of important points and, and it, it sounds like one of the takeaways I, I'm getting from this is certainly people are very acquisitive, but there may be a question as to how many people are, are willing to sell or, or be acquired because in a, in, a, in a market that's rising, everybody is doing better than they were uh, perhaps in the recent, the recent past. Is, is there a distinction to be drawn here between uh, public companies and, and, and private companies? Is, is the behavior that we can expect, uh, I suppose, on either side, either as acquirers or, or, or those who are acquired to, to be different, depending on whether you're public or private? I don't know if anybody wants to, to take that one. 
Well, I mean, we're we're entering a uh, a market where if you have ten ships privately, you're not going to be able to deal with the regulatory issues uh, that that are going to be uh, coming up. And and basically, it's it's actually pretty hopeless. You'll you'll have to uh, basically sell your operation because um, there's no way if you start with ten ships unless you have you know your you know five hundred million in cash in the bank, you're not going to be able to grow to a size that will allow you to deal with, uh, with basically the, the uh, greenhouse gas issues, both of the IMO and of the European Union and, and probably other jurisdictions as well. Andy, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Is, are some of the smaller owners going to be really constrained in this environment and have no choice but to, to yeah. yeah, no, I, I look, I, I think small is going to be challenging going forward, whether it be for regulatory reasons, whether it be for attracting capital. I think we've already seen that. That's not new news. It's harder, I would argue, for a smaller company to, to borrow at a reasonable rate compared to a bigger company. Uh, and, and it's just, and, and the other point is just to compete for these, you know, to have the capital to invest, as I mentioned earlier, in these, these transitional technologies, which is going to require a lot of R&D and, and having the types of people on staff that can engage meaningfully in the design process. And, you know, we've really tried to do that by putting a team together of naval architects, chief engineers, superintendents, people that have had that experience that can sit down with an end user and, and, and have that conversation and actually meaningfully impact what the outcome is of the vessel that's being designed. And unless you're willing to support that and invest in it and have those types of people on staff, I think it, it becomes just another point that makes it difficult for the smaller company yeah. to survive. Um, you know, the other thing too, I think, which was probably make, making the industry a little bit more rosier, and we've been talking about it, just generally setting aside consolidation or not, is, is you know, upcoming in, in June, the, the EU IMO discussion on how WEXI is going to be interpreted, and then the implementation of that in 23 uh, is probably going to make a, a big swath of, of older ships just un, uneconomical. They'll have to be accelerated from a, uh, from a scrapping perspective, which will put pressure on supply. Uh, shipyards have now all gotten filled up with container ship orders because that market is so just amazingly robust, probably more so than I've ever seen in my career. Uh, who knows how long it'll last, but it seems like the tightness on supply, which is the product of underinvestment for 10 years as we've recovered from the last boom, uh, is, is setting up, whether it's another boom or just a reversion to hopefully a, a reasonable and predictable mean but you know there's there are sunny i think shoots on, on the on the horizon across whether as hamish was saying in the dry cargo market which is extremely ro robust from its fundamentals currently so um but i think you got to be big to survive uh for the long term so yeah i agree with that so um greg i, I would say on this I, I completely agree with andy but i have to say that the five of us on this panel may have an inherent bias because all of us represent very large institutions that are either very large and or very well funded. So, uh, you know, kind of that's how I think we all honestly see it. Uh, but again, I think it also represents that bias. The reality, I think, I'll probably, if, if I were to adjust again what Andy says, and again, I, I agree completely with that, but I would say simply that if you're small today and wish to remain small, you better have had a very good set of relationships over 20 years with banks. You've better never having like taken write downs, not paid back, blah, blah, blah. 
because the banks don't have space for you if you have not been that kind of small owner before. So, and certainly your customers uh, will need more of that too, because they too have the same pressures on the other side. So I think it just simply makes the cost of operation and the likelihood of survival smaller if you are small. Um, and so it just takes the being like just the very top of the small player survive. Yeah, yeah. You, you actually touched on something I wanted to, to raise, which is what, what is the role of the banks in, in this process or this evolution of the market, if you will, uh, you know, are, are bank restructurings, for example, contributing uh, to, to, I suppose, the availability of, of vessels to be acquired? And, and is that going to continue? Is that a meaningful factor in this? But maybe I can take that, uh, Greg, if you, if you want. For, for us, bank restructuring meant, uh, you know, the shipping and we started from a company that was Premuda, was listed, was in restructuring. And then we did all our growing and consolidation from restructuring. Basically, uh, I, I agree on, uh, on what Andrea said, but uh, especially in Italy, for example, banks are simply not, not existing uh, anymore, you know, for shipping. So there has been a, a huge shift uh, towards private capital. Uh, private equity has uh, not only us taken over the sector. And uh, I think... Uh, Unless you have very good relationship, I agree with banks, uh, and there aren't many banks doing this anymore, uh, it's not going to be very, very, very easy to, uh, to, to try to overcome the challenge, you know, of, of a change that there is in the market. Yeah, it, just, it seems like just on the bank thing, it, it seems like that's played out now, but there aren't, I haven't seen any real significant restructurings kick around, and, and to, to the extent... As Hamish mentioned, they're probably all performing. Whatever's left and that wasn't restructured is is probably actually doing relatively well right now. Yeah. So the pressure to sell anything is gone. Uh, so um, probably not a big issue going forward. I, I would add to all of that. I mean, this is a theme that has been ongoing in terms of of why does scale matter? And I agree with Andreas's comment very much that it is true that that you know the we all represent larger institutions. And so I think we do see benefits to that. But when you think about the number of aspects where scale is important here, it's only accelerating the need for scale, whether it's environmental regulations, whether it's the fact that bank capital continues to get constrained. Um, and as bank capital continues to get to constrained for a shipping company to access alternative financing sources, um, they need to have a certain scale to do that, certainly in the public markets. In the private markets, I think there certainly are smaller private funds who may want to support individual asset purchases. Um, you know, th that's not where city can be most helpful in terms of helping our clients, but certainly there are institutions out there who, who are spending time there and, and there will always be, you know, smaller funds who will look for opportunistic ways to invest capital. And, you know, maybe some of those are asset plays where someone has a view on a sector and says, look, I think this is a really attractive time, right? Making money and shipping is about buying assets at the right time and financing them in the most cost-effective way. Um, that's not what's going to drive the M&A market. What's going to drive the M&A market, and, and I do believe is a continued trend, are all of these things we've been talking about, which are the benefits of, of scale. And I think you see that privately um, through the likes of BW Group, who's been very successful, and you see that publicly, you know, with you know Hamish's company on the phone here. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I, I was sitting here thinking about uh, smaller owners who I, who I may know about, and wondering, you know, what's what's really in the cards for them. 
so we have this, the energy transition. Uh, obviously, it's going to take a lot of capital to be in front of the energy transition. On the other hand, I imagine some of them have the view, well, let's, let's just wait and see. It's a little bit like, like the scrubber discussion. You know, how, how available will low sulfur fuel really be? We, we don't necessarily have to take the lead in scrubbers because you know, if, if, we, if, if we wait and see, it might be that it works out well for us. And I would tend to think there may be a number of smaller owners who are interested to see what is the emerging technology. Uh, whether it's something that could be retrofitted into vessels, for example, or requires fleet replacement. But, and so, so I, I wonder in that, in that sense, wh whether uh, some of these guys may be hesitant to be acquired to, too soon. Are, are there hope for the, for the smaller owners in, in this environment? Well, well I mean, uh, the smaller owners are looking, they, they see the same optimistic picture of the market that we see, you know, so they're, they're thinking that their ships will be quite profitable uh, going forward for a while anyway. And, you know, the, the, the truth is if you have a fleet that is, you know, not among the very worst fuel consumers, that fleet is going to be very profitable in the, um, with the new environmental regulations because basically the fleet will slow down to save fuel. And by slowing down, um, it will reduce the capacity available and that will push the rates up. And unless you're among the very worst ships, which will have to either slow down to a ridiculous extent or, or go out of service, you know, you, you'll probably do okay. I mean, the, 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 the problem you'll have is that you'll have not just capital expenditure, but you'll have a lot of operating expenditure. You'll have a lot of overhead in terms of complying with the regulations. You know, people will have to project their carbon intensity indicator, you know, which is a challenging, challenging thing to do, you know, during the year. Um, and so probably there will be at least one person and maybe a small team devoted to managing the carbon intensity indicator. You know, you'll, you'll have, uh, as you pointed out, Greg, capital investments to manage your uh, your EEXI, um, you know, which which will take another small team. So, um, you know, I, I would say it looks good in the medium term, but it life gets harder and harder for a small owner as you go, you know, past 2023 into 2030. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a hard topic. Uh, that's probably the single hardest topic for us. I mean, I know that mm -hmm. topics like balance sheet and financing are hard for a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, largely because of the history of BW. BW has managed its balance sheet very carefully and will remain extremely liquid. And we've actually had very good collaboration from banks because we've actually always kind of do our banks very well. Uh, so we don't have issues on that front, but even at our size, you know, uh, controlling, owning more than 400 ships, uh, it's just very hard to have an answer on uh, ESG and related regulations. It's just very hard. We don't know. Uh, I spend a lot of my time trying to figure this out. Andrea Summon Pau spends a lot of his time. A lot of our CEOs are spending their time. It's very hard to figure that out. And interestingly, uh, we've begun to see a lot of people putting money to work. And so people are buying shares in hydrogen. They're doing ammonia. They're doing nothing. So at the end of this, not everybody will be right. And uh, you know, because ca capital is really going yeah. in. 
And so you could be too fast or too late, um, too slow. Uh, but again, of, of all the topics, I, I, and actually, again, we have, I think, a broad enough organization will collect probably a lot of information. I just don't think there is a clear answer that we have been willing to actually invest a ton of resources to this point solely because the technological variations and the options are just too many at this point, way too many. So if I look at that and then extrapolate for a smaller owner who doesn't have that bread, that's like, wow, how can they possibly? So it's just, it's very hard. Uh, I mean, honestly, that keeps us very humble because the more, we real, the more we learn, the more we realize we just don't have any clue, honestly, on this topic. Yeah, I, I got a great example of, so to take the LNG bunkering business, right? That's expected to grow quite a bit. Transitional fuel or not, it's still projected to be around for, let's say, 20 years. Then you start asking yourself, okay, the first bunkering barges that were built were 3,000, 4,000 cubic. Now we're looking at 20,000 cubic for container ships. And then you're saying to yourself, well, then VLCCs are going to need maybe 12,000 cubic. VLGCs have maybe two tanks at 3,000 each. So that's 6,000 cubic. So what size bunker barge do you build? And in six to 10 years time, you know, that might be all different. So that's kind of articulating what Andreas is saying. It's, it's a conundrum and these things are not cheap, right? It's 30 million and up for the smallest one. So uh, uh, just one, one real world example of how we're bringing our hands here. So I, I think that's fascinating. And I, and I would like to talk a little bit more about how different platforms are approaching the transition. There's one nuance to this that I, I think might be interesting to talk about. So we're talking about getting larger, like, larger balance sheet, larger capacity to invest, I suppose, in alternative technologies. But we're all, it also means aggregating larger numbers of older vessels uh, onto the platform, all of which may have these environmental issues going forward. Um, how, how do larger platforms deal with that? Is it about averaging the emissions across the fleet? Is it about uh, additional efficiencies of operations that make that less of a problem for a bigger platform than, than say, a smaller one? Well, the, the two things I'll say, it, it, we certainly, I mean, our companies are different and they're two thirds of our 15 companies are public, so they have to report differently by definition. Uh, they each have different shareholders, uh, even if we're the controlling one in most of them. So uh, we do them differently. I, I can tell you that uh, we do two things. One is that when we look at ships, irrespective of whether the markets are good or less good, we don't view ships as 25 to 30 year life. Uh, we actually view ships at 15, 16, 17 years. Um, and uh, that's how we treat them because that's how we feel actually um, the future is. Secondly, we haven't really done new builds um, with very few exceptions. Uh, it's very hard to know what the ship of the future will look like. Um, we, we are obviously meaningful investors, partners with uh, the Swire Group in Cadillac, the wind turbine installation business. That has announced it will actually get new builds. Um, that's expensive ticket. That's 300 plus million per ship. So, and that, you know, kind of that, that keeps it uh, narrow. But um, I don't think you'll find, if you look across our companies, very many other new builds. Because again, I just think that uh, you have to really let the existing ships age, be withdrawn, go away, give some more time to technology to play out. So people that produce like the Varchulas or the Mans, the Hyundais or the Mitsubishis or the DSMEs, produce something, see actually what works, what the economics are, uh, and then make some decisions. Asking customers to invest 300 million per vessel or even 100 million per vessel is a very high ask if you don't know what technology will actually work in the future. 
Well, even 50 million a vessel is a lot if you don't know what technology will work. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. And, you know, until there is a consensus as to what fuel is going to be the zero carbon fuel of the industry going forward, um, you know, as Andrea said, if you make a choice before there's a consensus, some people will be very, very wrong. And if you get your choice of fuel wrong, you know, you might have twice the voyage cost that somebody else would have with a different fuel. It makes your investment in, in that ship worthless um, if you get this decision wrong. So, um, you know, it, it, it really is suppressing the, uh, the ordering of new buildings, which is great for you know the whole industry i guess with the possible exception of container shipping where people are ordering nevertheless so it, it it seems like there's a lot of factors to balance here having a big enough balance sheet to be able to make the necessary investments in the carbon transition while not necessarily being out in the lead putting money to work because everybody wants to see what is the prevailing te technology uh, it sounds like people want the best fleet possible but a bigger fleet allows you to manage kind of the, the overall emissions across across the fleet, um, and, and I think this is all about positioning. Then, isn't it? To wait and see what what is the future, uh, and, and be prepared to to react to it. Um, Roberto, you, you mentioned to me that that a lot of your day to day work now is also focused on on the carbon transition, um, and and I guess from your perspective on, on substantially the private side, uh, you're also uh, you know believe a bigger balance sheet is necessary to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you could tell me a little bit more about our, our discussion there. What, what are your thoughts on this topic in terms of scale? Well, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think uh, um, there is, uh, I mean, for us, for example, we, we, we find ourselves with a very mixed fleet, mainly tankers, but some of them are not that young. So, you know, we are really thinking that is also driving our strategic thinking, uh, what we have to do next. Of course, I completely agree with Andreas. We don't know what the, the next technology is. The consensus is not there yet. So before investing, uh, it's very important to, to do the right thing. So for us, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, it, it's really a moment of uncertainty. And I would say that nobody mentioned uh, COVID at the moment. But for us, for example, uh, being, being very exposed to tankers, uh, the year that has been lost with uh, with Codiv uh, has been look like uh, two three years because of the in the meantime you know the ESG talks accelerated and uh, you know the ships are getting a little bit older and uh, you know as an investor you you look at uh, you know what you have to do and uh, how you need to replace your uh, your uh, your fleet so you know you are uh, you know between a choice of uh, exiting and avoid big investments uh, or try you know to to stay in and uh, renew the fleet and uh, and uh, try to be well positioned on on the ESG transition so in summary i think a lot of a lot of uncertainty for us on this uh, on this uh, on this topic well, that, um, greg just if I, if I jump in on transition um i don't know if i actually again Having heard Roberto, I just want to clarify effectively something that I said before. We certainly believe that the transition is happening and will happen. The question is in what horizon, right? Because if the answer is in three years or seven or 12, 
makes a very big difference on what you do and how you do it. We certainly have been investing, as Krista and others know, we have been investing a lot in energy transition. So for example, I mentioned before, we did um, half a dozen investments. Those were in floating wind, um, sorry, floating solar, uh, fixed wind, water treatment, uh, fertilizers, biogas. We did a bunch of those and some in the same company actually as well. And um, so I do think we're in a very particular moment in time uh, where if we all look back, the, all of us who actually worked for a while, look back in 20 years, you say, I wanna be in the right side of history. So however you look at it, uh, you have to um, want to be on the right side of history. And so you can't argue against that. At the same time, you're also cognizant that if you talk to a bunch of friends in New York and a bunch of friends in Oslo, you think you're on two different planets about the speed of the transition. Like in Oslo, you think that the world only burns green hydrogen. If you are in New York, you don't even know how to spell green hydrogen. So, and, and by the way, that's the only divergence I've seen over the past dozen years between important capital markets where usually if you hear of a deal on Tuesday in Hong Kong, the same day you hear this in London, Oslo, and New York. So this is very different. But again, as we go through this, I do think that this industry has been an important polluter over time. I think we need to be on the right side of history. And I do think that it will get there. Uh, the question is when, how, et cetera. It may be that people get lucky because other fish are easier to fry sooner, so to speak, in other sectors. Um, and so this may have a few more years before that. But I, if I was intended to be long-term in the sector as a small ship owner or a big ship owner, I would say, you have to really put some money aside to make sure you can make this happen in your fleet, whatever your fleet looks like in the next few years. Yeah, no, I, I, actually, I, I think New York is moving toward Oslo faster than, than may be apparent, you know, with the, the American Petroleum Institute announcing that they're in favor of carbon taxes, you know, th that basically uh, means that hell has frozen over. <laughs> um, and and I think um, you know with the the new administration in Washington, I think we'll see the uh, the U.S. move very rapidly closer to the positions of the European Union. Maybe maybe not all the way to where Norway is, but you know. Well, all of this sounds very good, and I think we've, we've identified some of the factors that are probably supporting an environment where people are enthusiastic about, about consolidation. I've also heard a theme though, that there's quite a bit of uncertainty, uh, both probably with respect to where the world's gonna go uh, in general, but, but also with respect to the carbon transition and some of the factors that are, are contributing to, to the theme here. Um, but, you know, so we have all this exuberance, but in other panels like this, that some of us have participated in before, we've also heard about barriers to consolidation. And I think some of those factors are potentially endemic to shipping. Um, are they still relevant or are some of the previous barriers, well, let, first off, what are some of the barriers to consolidation and shipping? And, and can we say that, that some of those things are different now? Um, I, I, think they are, I think they are still around and um, um, not for everybody, but on average, they're still around. I'll give you just a couple of examples. One is very different regulations across jurisdictions. Secondly, uh, the rabid desire to be independent. So many people got in this business because they want to be independent. They say, I'd rather be on my own with five ships than work for somebody else with 22 ships. And that's legitimate, by the way. That's a legitimate life choice. So I think those reasons um, are two of the many that keep this like that. Additionally, 
uh, and that's a topic that we exchange a bit on before is um, um, ships versus shares and how do you do this? And so we've actually said to people, as, as people have really reached out to us a lot more, we said, would love to, um, for our public companies anyway, would love to value ships NAV to NAV, but pay with shares. Uh, and again, I know that uh, those of you who've been in banking before think that's hard, whether you're trading below or above NAV, it's hard in both ways for different reasons. Uh, and I think it now takes actually a wisdom to say, do I wanna be independent or do I wanna make more money? Uh, and it may be a different answer. So, but I think at least again for us, we, we tell people, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this here is, it's NAV to NAV and pay with shares, at least if the company's public. If it's private, you can actually talk differently because then you don't have the same obligations to other shareholders. Uh, so I think those are just three of many barriers that one would say exist um, exist in the um, you know kind of in, in the deal making world. Uh, even if, as everybody said, there is an acceleration of trends towards consolidation and aggregation. Would add that on the uh, the share side, if you're a private company and you want to exit, or if you're looking to get some liquidity, <clears throat> I think one of the challenges, as we've been talking about, is there aren't that many big publicly traded shipping companies, and so you can end up with shares that, again, no, no sort of comments on anybody in this panel, but the liquidity of those shares may be challenging in the sense it may take you a while to get out of that liquidity position. So I think that if you're doing a merger of equals or some sort of takeover where the sort of subsequent management team ultimately consolidates the entire two platforms, and that's fine, but because then it makes the company bigger and theoretically more liquidity and whoever's exiting can exit. But, but I've always found it difficult to sell ships for shares on a onesie, twosie, or threesie basis because it takes me six to, to 12 months to liquidate those shares and reinvest that money elsewhere. Now, I suppose you can make the argument that if you bought the public or if you took shares in publicly traded shipping companies a year ago, uh, you would have done pretty well if you hadn't sold your shares because they've all gone up in price. So I guess if you time it right, then you can not only just buy well in the asset side, but you could potentially invest well on the uh, share side. But that hasn't really been the case for the last 10 years. I think you can simplify it. It really comes down to what are the motivations for a company or an owner to sell? What is the willingness to transact? And what is the view on relative value? And, you know, wrapping into that is, you know, your outlook of the future, how you think about energy transition, you know, how are two stocks valued relative to each other? But it comes down to motivations and it comes down to uh, to your view of long-term value and, and can you make those align? And that's, that is the arts of uh, consolidation. Well, I, I, we are already getting short on time in this very interesting discussion. Krista, we, I, I kind of wanted to get your, your take on, on what we're gonna see this year as we kind of come to the end of this, this segment. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about with, with Ships for Shares deals, and I think we've touched on that. You know, another hot topic, which I, I may, you may tell me is not so relevant for shipping, but I think people are talking about in, in general quite a bit these days are, are SPACs. Uh, I know SPACs were uh, a popular topic a number of years ago. Are, are we going to, are SPACs relevant to shipping this year? So the SPAC market has been driving the broader M&A markets and um, City is, is certainly active, both taking many SPACs public and, and helping many companies be SPAC. There are more challenges in shipping for SPACs in terms of um, finding a suitable match because the ultimate question as to whether a SPAC merger makes sense is, do you have the basis for a viable standalone public company, yes or no? 
And you know, if the answer is yes, then then there's lots of capital out there in the forms of SPAC that, that could be a potential merger partner. But I think that's a threshold question. I would say keep it all away. We don't. We the less capital, the better for all of us on the uh, the panel here, in the sense that it supports the uh, the tightness and the supply that we expect to be driven over the next five years. Yeah. That 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 resonates. Um, I, I think we're just about at the end. Th th thank you very much, everybody, for for these really illuminating remarks. Uh, I see Nicholas has has rejoined us. Uh, so so thank you, everybody. I would like to add my own thanks. Frankly, I'm so uh, humbled to uh, to listen to all this uh, insight. Uh, it's tremendous. So thank you very very much to all of you for joining us. Uh, to our panelists from Europe and uh, to us in New York. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you. Greg.